Welcome to the Scottish Business Network podcast. Hello, I'm Fraser Allen. I'm back after a summer break. The bucket and spade have been packed away for another year, and I'm delighted to welcome you to episode 68 and an outstanding interviewee. Growing up on a Californian farm, Eric McAfee's horizons were broadened by global travel, including extensive tours playing trumpet in a band. Yet running parallel to this, he and his brothers started a business at an early age called McAfee Farms, managing agricultural properties. And at the tender age of 23, while he was still at college, Eric was part of a trio that staged a leveraged buyout of a $20 million business. He's never looked back, and Eric very quickly established himself as a highly successful venture capitalist. Yet money is not the main motivation. Eric is driven by desire to create a legacy of businesses that deliver significant global benefits via renewable energy solutions. Hearing him talk openly about this motivation and his approach to venture capital is fascinating. Eric is a great example of the powerful contributions being made by the Scottish diaspora across the world, and he also discusses his family connections with the old country and the Isle of Colonsay. This interview was recorded on the 15th of July, 2021. If you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to the series? Simply search for Scottish Business Network on Apple Music, Spotify, or the podcast platform of your choice. Eric McAfee, it's wonderful to speak to you in, in California this morning. Could you tell us how, how you're feeling today and what, what your day's looking like? Oh, thank you, Fraser. Nice to talk to you. Yes, I'm I'm uh, talking to you from sunny California. It's been a little bit too sun- sunny this summer, but uh, as always, it never rains in Cal- Southern California. But here in Northern California, Silicon Valley, uh, likewise, has had uh, had wonderful wonderful weather. It's it's a place that attracts entrepreneurs and business people from all around the world. Uh, not only because of the the weather, but also because of the business environment, and we've been in the middle of a boom for for several years uh, of new investment and new innovation, and so that ec- excitement continues despite some of the overhang of COVID. Uh, things are alive and well here in California, especially in Silicon Valley. Well, that's great to hear, and perhaps it, it must be something to do with interviewing you. But the, the weather here in Scotland is superb today, which isn't always the case. Now, let's kind of start at the beginning, and I'd love to hear a little bit about your your upbringing in California. What was that like, and, and what did you dream of doing for a career when you were at school? I had a interesting upbringing in that I grew up as a farm boy in the Central Valley of California, uh, about fifteen miles west of. Fresno, California, which is an agricultural area. Um, and I grew up on a, a mile square, 640 acre chunk of land with four brothers. And so we had the run of the place and could build forts and uh, have a dirt clod wars and everything else that young men come up with when you've got a mile square chunk of land to run around on. But what was un- unusual is that my parents uh, were very interested in travel. So I lived in a kibbutzim in Israel for a short time when I was about wow. eight years old and uh, had a, uh, a boat trip up the Adriatic Sea that ended up uh, getting uh, kind of uh, in trouble off the coast of Albania. So I uh, ended up being picked up by an Albanian patrol boat uh, when, our, when our boat was off the shore. And I lived in Alaska and Italy and some other places, but always came back to the farm. So those were sort of when people say they have summer vacation, uh, our family would go and and travel places and and had some interesting experiences as a result of that. So it sounds like a, a slightly unusual and very exciting 
childhood and uh, then you know when you left high school i believe that the adventures continued you went went off with a trumpet to perform with a band tell us a bit about that well our uh, i had the benefit of having a mother who was very interested in in performance arts so when i was i think i was 7 years old i was in a romanian dance troupe doing <laughs> very complicated uh, romanian uh, group dance with the rest of my my brothers and then uh, took up uh, piano and and trumpet and throughout high school was able to participate in in bands and orchestras and i'm a big promoter of the arts uh as a way to develop the full uh, set of personality characteristics uh, in, in teamwork and the intellectual development of the, the non-calculating uh, part of the brain actually supports the calculating part of the brain. And there's just so many benefits of, of those. And you'll see later in my career that we've continued to f- support those kinds of activities. But when I was 14 years old, I joined a 30-member delegation from the United States that were selected, uh, mostly college kids, but I, I was uh, elected the, as the president of the delegation, and we represented the United States in the Soviet Union in the <laughs> 1977 uh, Year of the Child United Nations and, and, and uh, event in which there were 127 wow. countries represented about 5,000 students. And we spent a, a couple of weeks in Moscow and then three weeks down in Yalta in the Black Sea at the Young Pioneer Camp in, in, in the Black Sea. And it gave me an opportunity as a president of the American delegation, uh, really part of the council that, that ran the whole 5,000 member uh, activity, to, to meet young people from, from parts of the world you don't get to meet them, such as North uh, Vietnam and, and China. And at a very young age, I had uh, developed an interest in international business because these people seemed to me to be people you could actually uh, communicate with, and and uh, they had resources. We had resources that were distinctive, and you put the two together, and you can end up with an interesting outcome. So, from uh, about the same time, my brothers and I started a business on some uh, uh, land. Uh, eventually, it was about twenty two hundred acres that we had when we were teenagers that we ended up being responsible for. So, we started McAfee Farms um, to manage those properties, and over the course of what is it? I'm, I'm in my late fifties now. Over the course of that time period, have been able to have that as basically my first venture capital uh, arrangement. So I was I was very much into in business, uh, parallel with being in in music, and became uh, first chair state honor orchestra on the trumpet, and uh, eventually, when I went uh, out of high school, joined the Up with People performing group as the principal trumpet, the lead trumpet player, and we did. Uh, Let's see, 30 cities in Mexico where we lived in host families throughout Mexico and then 80 cities in the U.S. and performed at a variety of different venues um, in, in, uh, in both the U.S. And, and Mexico for a year after I graduated <laughs> from high school. And that was a great opportunity to combine music and dance and international uh, uh, themes. There are about 130 people in our cast from 32 different countries. And living together for a year in a tour bus and at host families was quite a, f- a wonderful opportunity to kind of see the world in a different way. So you, your upbringing, those early years, really broadened your your horizon. So the, the possibilities must have seemed endless. So what what were you thinking at that stage? You had all these things going on. How did you see your career panning out in the future? Well, interestingly, I got accepted at a very prestigious private school in Southern California that is a bit of a funnel into Washington, D.C. political um, political uh, echelons. It's Claremont Men's College. And uh, 
many, many leaders in, in Washington, D.C. politics uh, are graduates of that. And a guy named Peter Drucker, who was a very oh, yeah. famous academic, was a professor there. And I was accepted there uh, out of high school. I, I uh, made a defining decision, which may or may not have been a good decision, but it was the decision taken at the time to uh, not go to Claremont Men's College, but instead go to Fresno State University and continue to manage the businesses that my brothers and I had started. Um, I felt a lot of responsibility to the family uh, properties, and, and there, was, there was a need for, for leadership there. So uh, during my time at Fresno State, I had three different law firms uh, working for us and had the uh, business activities, but I also got involved in student government at at the college and ended up graduating as the dean's medalist, the the awardee of being the top graduate of the business school with 832 students. But that was partially because, as, as a 23 year old, I did a leverage buyout of a 20 million dollar company <laughs> along with two older gentlemen who were the operators. They needed somebody to kind of be the financial. Uh, guy to, to kind of intern with them on pulling it together. And so I did an LBO, a leverage buyout at, when I was in college. And uh, that set me up for a career after college that was really built around the idea that if you could obtain capital, you could, you could buy an existing business, you could, you could start a new business and mm-hmm. that uh, your ability to attract capital was a core uh, asset that an entrepreneur needed to happen uh, need to have, and and I, I really developed a career around around trying to trying to do that, create ideas that were compelling enough to attract capital, and then organize the teams to be able to execute on those ideas. So you must have been an extraordinarily focused and, and confident young man to to be leading deals like that at such a, a young age. Um, you're now, uh, as we know, a very successful venture capitalist. So there's so much ground we could cover here, Eric. I wonder if you could help listeners by sort of drawing the connection between those early days and what you're doing now. Maybe pick out some of the key moments in your career and some of the challenges that you faced. Well, I think that fundamentally I've always been interested in finding what I would call the light at the end of the tunnel. And so many businesses are really built on the idea that you can do a service that's already in the marketplace, but just do it physically differently in a different location. Uh, not to say this is a good or bad idea, but start a hamburger restaurant, but do it in a town that has fewer hamburger restaurants than where you came from. You're, you're really trying to just uh, not take the risk that maybe your new idea is going to not work, that your hamburgers are only going to be ordered online or something like that. Mm-hmm. I've had a somewhat different view, which is let me try to find places where there are very big gaps there is a very large need that is not being fulfilled and has not been built fulfilled before, but if fulfilled, creates a tremendous amount of value. And I'm perfectly willing to fail at that enterprise because the size of the problem justifies the risk of, of, of failure. And uh, about 20 years ago, I got very interested in energy and after, uh, prior to that had been in technology and in, in investing and starting companies in the computer-related uh, industries. But uh, 20 years ago, I decided to apply technology to the energy industry. And within a couple of years, uh, had started Pacific Ethanol, which combines the energy industry where I founded 
four oil companies took all four public onto the NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange. Uh, I was very interested in, okay, well, how do you create better quality uh, energy products, ones that have a better impact on the environment, are cheaper, create domestic investment and jobs, et cetera. So much of the last approximately 20 years has been taking the technology uh, skills that I, I developed in, in computing um, and in, in starting and funding computer-related companies and applying it to an industry on, on massive scale. The largest industry in the world is, is energy from a revenue perspective and, and creating innovation that, that spans across microbiology to process technology and a tremendous amount of capital. Our projects today are very commonly several hundred million dollars each. And I see that there's a need for leadership in uh, in renewable fuels, renewable chemicals, and uh, that the, when you're trying to deploy hundreds of millions of dollars of capital on every single project, the ability to raise capital is one of your distinctive comparative advantages. And so, over the course of my career, I've been able to have the good fortune of raising over a billion of equity capital for ideas I've come up with, and probably a similar amount of debt capital. So, um, to be able to to know I can. I can raise hundreds of millions of dollars. Let's focus it on things where other people can't. Uh, that that's a distinctive advantage that uh, I felt would be worth uh, exercising. Uh, Pacific Ethanol was basically myself and a politician, and we were taking a view of the world that that was trying to figure out what what markets were going to open for renewable fuels. And California had been contaminated with MTBE, which is made by oil refineries and was necessary to burn gasoline cleaner so it didn't pollute as much. And California's uh, water wells are being polluted by this product, and it's it's a cancerous uh, chemical. And so California adopted ethanol in 2004. And about a year ahead of that, we saw that happening. Uh, my partner being a politician, he was familiar with the politics that was going to push the ethanol to, to be the replacement for MTBE. And we concluded there really was no other large-scale chemical that could replace MTBE. And so we founded Pacific Ethanol, and it became worth about uh, almost $2 billion a little over three years after we founded it. Uh, it was funded by Bill Gates's Cascade Fund, which is a $50 billion fund, when it was just basically a, a team with a PowerPoint, and we were marketing some, some ethanol to create some revenue, uh, but at very, very low margins. Uh, we raised $85 million at a $250 million pre-money valuation, so sold, whatever is that, uh, roughly 30% of the company to, uh, to the Microsoft um, Founders yeah. Fund. Uh, and then raised another $146 million at a, at a $1.1 billion pre-money valuation less than a year later, and then $320 million of debt. And that company became worth almost $2 billion a little, little over three years after I started it. Stock went from $1 a share to $46 a share. So that was that was my first biofuels company, and I went on to to do other ones. And uh, it was all about predicting where's the market going. And uh, I, I usually describe it as when you're a quarterback, if you throw the football to where your receiver already is, they're mm -hmm. they're going to not be there when the the ball arrives. You have to look at where the touchdown is, throw the football to the touchdown, and know where your receivers are going to be. In order for them to catch it, and that's really our job as venture capitalists. But I would say, even more important, our job as entrepreneurs is to not look at the world as it is, but to to predict how it's going to be, 
and then throw our investments in the direction in which we're going to be successful when the world catches up to us. That's a, a great analogy. And, and the way you're describing what you've done there, in a way, to, to people like me, you make it sound quite simple, but I'm sure it's not. Um, yeah, so what are, what are some of the things that, that do go wrong, can go wrong, that, um, that you've had to negotiate over the years? Well, uh, to simplify it, it would be the out exterior market uh, external to the company that you're working on moves in ways that you did not predict. So you thought the touchdown was straight ahead. You threw the ball that direction, but then somebody changed the length of the field. It no longer is a 100-yard field. Now it's a 150-yard field. And I say this because this is the number one issue in the market that I'm most interested in right now, which is renewable fuels and chemicals, as energy, basically. Uh, the rules which were set out in the U.S. at the federal level, passed in 2007, uh, became politically difficult for uh, a couple different uh, presidents. And so they couldn't change the rules because Congress passes the laws and, and, and the, government, the president signs them. So what did they do? They, they just ignored them. They just didn't enforce them. And so for the last seven years or so, the United States has been through this very strange situation in which the law is very clear and not really one word has changed in the law, but the oil industry has been trying desperately to avoid complying with the law and, and has convinced regulators just to, to not do it. And so we've had uh, two different federal court uh, orders saying, sorry, you actually have to enforce the law. So as an entrepreneur, uh, I was well into my second biofuels uh, company, uh, probably what we were into it by six or seven years, and they just stopped enforcing the law. And so when you predict a market's going to happen because it's actually set forth in federal law and you make very large investments, hundred plus million dollar investments in that direction, and then then the, the market doesn't happen, um, we've had to fund that. And um, it's, it's more difficult, frankly, than creating a new idea in an mar emerging market is to take your existing idea and decide how you're going to adjust it because market conditions have changed. And in our particular situation, we had to, to survive seven years of, of financing and adjustments while still being committed to the same overall goal. And we've added additional technologies to make us uh, exposed to new markets, for example, carbon sequestration. Uh, we announced earlier this year that we'll be putting two injection wells in the ground in order to sequester the carbon that comes off of our production facilities. So the, the carbon is in the atmosphere. A plant uh, builds its, its biomass based upon CO2, H2O, which is water, and sunlight. So that's where you make biomass, a, a tree or a corn stalk or whatever. And uh, we then process that into valuable fuels and chemicals, but we get a lot of CO2 in our production process. If we put that carbon dioxide in the ground, we're taking CO2 from the sky and putting it in the ground, which is mm -hmm. actually uh, like a siphon sucking, uh, sucking CO2 out of, out of the atmosphere and, 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 in effect, reversing climate change. The opposite of what the production of, let's say, fuels and chemicals from crude oil does. Mm. Just sucks carbon out of the ground, and puts it in the sky, or coal utilities or petroleum natural gas utilities is taking carbon out of the ground, using it for a productive purpose, in this this case electricity, and then and then putting it up in the sky. So we're the opposite siphon. That of course is an extremely valuable 
industry that doesn't really exist today. Mm-hmm. So uh, our old ethanol company in this troubled regulatory environment because of, of, of political uh, influences by the oil industry now happens to be the number one most exciting opportunity for siphoning carbon out of the sky and sequestering it in the ground. And that uh, ability to slightly modify, we're still the largest ethanol producer in California, mm-hmm. uh, but to slightly modify it into being the one of the world's leading carbon sequestration companies is what we have to do. We have to find new touchdowns and discover the the length of the field and start throwing the ball again. We can't all just sit in the huddle all time and you know talk about how the game's going against us. Yeah, I mean, talking of, on that theme of market conditions suddenly and unexpectedly changing. How has the the pandemic crisis been for you, both in terms of of your business interests and and personally? Well, uh, in the United States, we had a, a crisis in sanitizer alcohol for hand sanitizers and for wipes. Um, Lysol is 58% alcohol. It's, it's the active component of, of, of sanitizer alcohol in, in, um, in Lysol. And we happen to own the largest ethanol plant in California. So within three days after the law changed and allowed us to make sanitizer alcohol, we adopted the process uh, internally, we added some chemicals and did some other stuff to, to upgrade our alcohol. And it actually received a prepayment of uh, over $100,000 from our first customer. And within a few months, it had done $23 million in sales of hand sanitizer um, during, the, during the, the crisis. And we became the largest sanitizer alcohol producer in the Western United States. And that was done without us seeing any of the other managers. I don't think I actually personally met with any of our managers at all during that four or five month window in which we did that that pivot and generated um, significant revenues at, at very significant margins. And so the reason why we were able to do that success, so successfully and many of our competitors were unable to uh, was because of the management uh, culture we'd built of uh, an ability to bring people together into a common vision and then release them to make decisions that might not always work out. And I started uh, a twice a day uh, operations call. One in the morning was uh, around focused around production and, and, and trucking logistics. And then the afternoon was around more general uh, uh, cash flow and, and customers and those sorts of things. But we did that for, oh, probably almost a year twice a day with our entire team via phone because we actually couldn't physically see each other. Uh, we had to have people be coordinated. And, and I, I would say I probably hosted 90, maybe 95% of those calls every single day, uh, five days a week and actually six days a week for many of those times, uh, sometimes Sunday afternoons. So it was a crisis of management in that we needed to come together as leaders to do almost daily uh, uh, triage on what was important and what wasn't important, including managing cash. And uh, it, was, it was difficult for teams that did not have high levels of trust in which accountability and, and not making mistakes is, is the priority. Our priority was progress. And sometimes in progress, you trip. And when you trip, you can either be pushed over by your uh, 
your other fellow management members and, and fall on the ground on your face. And then people laugh at you and say, see, he's, he's an idiot. Or they can grab you before you fall down and say, hey, wait, wait a minute, watch out. Uh, I, I tripped before and, and this is what I experienced. Let's, let's, let's pull this together. Let's pull, make this happen. And I would encourage most people to think about the damage they cause when they think there's anything to be won by showing the weaknesses of a member of their management team. It's mm-hmm. actually your fault. Mm-hmm. If they're showing weakness, it's because you haven't done a good enough job mentoring them because you are their leader, even if you're not the CEO. Hmm. You might be the receptionist at the front of the office, but if you're seeing an advantage in criticizing some secretary that's late every morning uh, and not mentoring them about what's really going on and finding out it's because they have an ill grandfather that they have to take to the hospital every morning for treatment, then you're not contributing to the culture of the company. So I think this is a, in COVID, has become one of the leading issues of our time which is how do you actually lead people rather than manage people? Management, of course, is taking existing resources you already have and allocating them. Uh, Leadership is about inspiring a vision of a goal that people can share in and then bringing whatever resources can be gathered together that everybody has to achieve that vision. The second half of the interview continues in a few seconds after this. Do you need a communications expert to help you with your marketing, brand storytelling or strategic content? Find out what I, Fraser Allen, can provide at www.allencoms.co.uk. That's Allen with two L's and an E and comms with two M's. Great advice. And um, I'm hearing a lot of natural passion and enthusiasm coming through in your in your voice, Eric. And I'm just wondering, what is it that kind of drives you and motivates you? Because you, you don't need to be doing this now, do you? You could you'd be going to the beach every day or playing golf, whatever it is that you'd like to do. What is it that um, makes you want to carry on, uh, you know, getting involved in new businesses and leading people? Uh, I, I, I have a... I have a saying that's that's probably not entirely accurate that I that I retired at age 33. I had built up a company starting when I was 29 years old. It was myself and two engineers, and we each put in a hundred dollars um, and built a company that did eight million in sales in the first year, 25 million in the second year, 48 million in the third year, and uh, was at a 60 million dollar per year run rate <clears throat> uh, with 150 employees making. Uh, personal computer memory cards, PCMCA cards. And we built up a 25,000 square foot factory and everything else, all with $300 of our original equity capital and uh, raised $15 million from a big investment firm, a uh, company and, and, and uh, some more money from ventures. But we own 70% of the company um, when I sold out at age 33. <clears throat> and, um, I like saying that I, I retired, which basically means to me <clears throat> that I get to work with people that I enjoy being with mm-hmm. and that I get to do businesses that really matter. And whether they be philanthropic activities or um, commercial activities, that retirement basically means you get to do things that matter. And to me, that's more of an attitude. It, uh, I can certainly, certainly, certainly say my financial goals were not achieved at age 33, where I was interested in just kind of uh, kicking back and doing very little. My goals were able to be expanded. And so after that, I became partners with a billionaire family 
and we together own 50% of a venture capital firm called Berg McAfee Companies. And the Bergs were the landlords for uh, IBM and Google and Apple. And so uh, they own 9 million square feet of industrial land in Silicon Valley. But they came from a a poor background. Their mother was a teacher. Their dad dad died when they were very young in New Mexico. They came to Silicon Valley uh, and worked themselves up from being real estate brokers to being real estate developers in in the industrial and commercial space. And uh, I was young. I was 20, uh, well, 29 years old when I started uh, my technology company, 33 when I sold out. So I, I was really 34 years old. Um, and and I found I had a very good cultural match with their view. I was a farm boy now in Silicon Valley um, and had the interest in, in looking at things and in a, in, a, in a way that created a lot of value. And so uh, together we were able to bring a lot of capital to, to bear on, on ideas. And so I've been free to think about the world in a way that uh, allows me to not think about capital constraints because I can go raise capital, not because I have capital, but mm-hmm. because I can raise capital. And one of the, the decision points that, that really made it clear to me was, was uh, John Anderson when I was 25 years old and I was in Los Angeles um, doing leverage buyouts. It was the, the window in my career after I graduated. So I went to LA and joined up with uh, two uh, experienced gentlemen, and we did uh, six leverage buyouts together in LA. And I met with the guy whose name is on the University of California, Los Angeles uh, Business School, J- uh, John Anderson. And he's a billionaire, and he was probably almost 80 years old when I met with him. And he and I spent a couple hours together. And one of the things that I most remember that about that meeting was him telling me that he, until about age 45, didn't actually have a uh, career as an entrepreneur. He was an accountant and then a lawyer. But he realized that if he could figure out how to raise money, that he would be able to to create enterprises and 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 get things done that he couldn't if he wasn't able to raise money. And so he told me when I was age 25, he said, Eric, it doesn't matter how long your career is, but at some point in time, you're going to understand that the guy actually running the company is the one that can raise money and that the other people are working for him. Mm-hmm. And so I uh, very soon thereafter said, well, that's why I've, I've had a lot of interest in in, in coming together with interesting ideas that can attract capital. But this guy basically said, you know, that that's the core of being the leader is you have to be able to bring uh, capital and other resources to bear uh, when you don't have anything to start with. It's just you and a PowerPoint presentation about something you think that is exciting for everybody else to be invite, uh, invited in to participate with. So that's been a core of my whole enthusiasm about life is I don't have this constraint saying, but Eric, that's going to cost a billion dollars. You can't do that. My view is that's going to cost a billion dollars. That's fantastic because there's very few other people who are going to undertake it and can actually achieve it. So what a wonderful world when there's only a few other people around that are even going to try this. And if you achieve it, it's worth $10 billion. So that's where I'm at in my career right now. Fascinating. Uh, uh, it'd be lovely actually to give us a bit of an overview of your business interests as they as they stand today. I mean, what, what are you working on? What what are you, your priorities for the, the rest of the year? 
Well, I certainly have uh, holdings in, in ag culture. Uh, when we were a teenager, we started McAfee Farms. About 20 years ago, we started Organic Pastures Dairy Company, company um, which has grown to be the world's largest raw milk dairy and processor and bottler and cheese company and uh, kefir. And we have distribution warehouses and trucks, and we ship across the United States and around the world. And uh, it's entirely owned by by my family. So I'm the chairman and, and uh, certainly lead that team. That's a, uh, uh, it's an opportunity to, to be directly involved with, with our nephews and nieces. And the next generation has now been promoted in the position of being presidents and, and uh, vice presidents running the business. Wonderful, uh, wonderful opportunity for my brothers and I to have been in business ever since we were teenagers, and then now to bring the rest of our wives and as well as, as our re, uh, respective children into business. It, it gives us a sense of purpose as a family and a sense of purpose in, in business. And that has uh, been very, very, very difficult over a number of decades as we, as we got to some of the core value propositions we could build. And frankly, those difficulties were part of the joy of our success is it wasn't us just inheriting something from somebody else and, and just keeping it alive. We actually had to create it um, out of what wasn't working well and wasn't working because of external conditions that uh, were really not of our making. So uh, the, the, the U.S. biofuel space is very, very interesting to me. Carbon sequestration is very, very interesting to me. Um, and specifically dairy um, biogas, the world's lowest carbon intensity fuel, is powering trucks with the methane that comes off of dairy lagoons. Oh. So we'll spend about $100 million over the next year. We've already spent $30 million. Uh, and then over the next 48 months, we'll spend about $300 million in uh, building uh, dairy lagoons, uh, 50 additional dairy lagoons. But we finished the first phase, have already multiple uh, lagoons and pipelines and all that already completed. And so that's an uh, interesting sort of five-year opportunity. Uh, that'll generate a couple hundred million in revenue and uh, almost 150 million a year of positive cash flow, and uh, that's that's kind of an interesting way to take waste and turn it into valuable product. We have uh, construction of a jet and diesel renewable diesel plant. Uh, we'll spend probably about a half a billion, a little more than that, about 600 million dollars over the next uh, five years, and build a plant that's almost 100 million gallons a year. Will be one of the largest renewable. Uh, jet fuel producers in the world. But what's interesting about that is that we should be the first carbon negative renewable jet fuel producer in the world and, and, and carbon negative renewable diesel. So every mile you, f you fly in the airplane, you're actually reversing climate change. And we're doing that by taking the waste orchard wood that's unique to the Central Valley of California. 99% of all the almonds in the entire United States are within the Central Valley of California. And where you're taking the waste wood that happens every 20 years as you remove the, the orchard uh, and turning that into the hydrogen used to make renewable jet fuel. And so we have carbon negative hydrogen. Usually people use very carbon intensive natural gas to use hydrogen. So it's carbon positive. Uh, our, our hydrogen comes from 20 years of trees absorbing carbon from the atmosphere. Petroleum hydrogen comes from the ground. It's natural gas coming out of the ground <clears throat> that then makes hydrogen. So we are excited about the opportunity to uh, demonstrate 
how that technology really can can work in the real world, and the economic rewards are, are enormous. That'll generate over 130 million a year of positive cash flow, um, and with some recent regulations, it could be as much as 200 million a year. So these these are businesses. If you can do a couple hundred million a year of cash flow, it's probably worth a couple billion on the market, and uh, then carbon sequestration. And two million to three million tons a year. I'm going to be announcing here uh, within the probably a month or two whether uh, it's three million tons or not. But these are this will be of five to seven hundred fifty million dollars a year of revenue, probably three hundred to four hundred million dollars a year of positive cash flow, um, running one of the largest carbon sequestration uh, businesses in the world, and. Um, Anytime you can generate 300 to 400 million a year of cash flow in a carbon sequestration business, it probably trades at 20 times cash flow. So that's a five or six billion dollar um, opportunity. So over the next 48 months, I've already announced a five-year plan on on, on what, what what we're doing here on these things. Um, we you know we have a shot at creating a 10 billion dollar company, maybe more. And I'm a relatively young guy, so over the next 48 months, if we can get that in place, uh, we'll be uh, We'll be showing how you can actually do things that reverse climate change. And the things that I'm focusing on right now are that opportunity to siphon carbon from the atmosphere into the ground, essentially, or sequester it into cement or somehow uh, permanently keep it from going back in the atmosphere again. And I think if we can do that at scale, uh, we'll have a dramatic impact on our our grandchildren's uh, experience. And uh, our grandchildren aren't so far away. And uh, when they grow up in 40, 50, 60 years and, and turn around and look at their parents and grandparents, I hope they, they, uh, they see us developing new technology and actually taking large, large uh, financial risks in order to have their life be better. Well, that would certainly be a fantastic legacy. And I love the idea of being able to reduce your carbon footprint by flying. I'm sure the aerospace industry is very interested in that too. Um, Eric, you've obviously with a name like McAfee, you have a, a Scottish heritage. So, how much do you know about your connections to Scotland, and what does it mean to you? I come from a long line of Presbyterian ministers and <laughs> theologians um, and missionaries, and so going back to Scotland, the the McAfee M A C F I E clan is is my historical clan and uh we were known as being rabble rousers and so we were kicked off the mainland and ended up in the island of uh, the isle of cullensay and uh when i was with alex salmond uh most recently uh, it was a number of years ago uh, he told me that that he tries to go to the isle, isle of cullensay for two weeks every year and it's his favorite place in, in the earth. Well, it happens to be a cold, windswept place <laughs> off the coast of Scotland, and it's it's fascinating to me that uh, that he likes it so much. But um, I, uh, I I I come from a history of of uh, missionaries and in in sort of evangelicals, and uh, I would say the businessmen largely are not favored by my ancestry of, of, of ministers because we're, we're seen as sort of the heathen. But in my view, um, we're in, in ministry in our lives. Sometimes we're in positive ministry. Sometimes we're in negative ministry. But what we do uh, ministers to others. Um, and I think creating jobs is one of the best things you can ever do for a person, giving them a, a place in society. It's not just economics. It's actually an entire self-concept a person gets when they have a job. And I, I personally think business is a fantastic tool 
to create not just the, the value of the products we create, such as reversing carbon change, climate change, but the value of the organizations we create, the, the jobs, the sense of purpose, the, the, uh, the, the personal development that we can all have. And uh, my hope would be that the direct and, and, and the, effectively the indirect impact of the decisions that I make would be positive, that people would, would learn uh, to, to develop and grow their own um, organizations. And uh, some of the executives that, that have been with me for 15 years um, have, have, have been able to have an indirect impact on the people that they um, employ and work with. Both vendors and customers and investors and everybody are in this, this, uh, this group that is influenced by us. So uh, I feel an opportunity to perhaps uh, have a more hopeful and productive um, future by having these people be influenced by us. And that, to me, is a bit of a, a ministry calling. And so my, uh, my overall view is um, we, we are here for a very short time, and we better figure out what, we're, what big problems we're going to try to fix and get going on it. And so all of our education and our career decisions and our, our personal family decisions and everything else, at the end of the day, they, they kind of add up to how much contribution did you make to improving society or detracting from society? And I feel uh, opportunity to contribute is, is a privilege. I've got certain skills and relationships and resources that are certainly more substantial now than when I was a teenager. But I would t- tell you, I have exactly the same attitude as when I was 14 years old, trying to run 2,200 acres with my older brother, who was 15. And uh, it was an excitement. It was a, how do we go and make this happen in a way that no 14-year-old was ever expected to have to do? Uh, let's, let's, let's go make something out of this. So you, you've got a lot of commitments, a lot of things you want to do in terms of work. I mean, do you, is it is your is your life primarily focused around work? Do you have time to do other things as well? I mean, what 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 would a dream weekend look like? Would it, would you actually just be on on your laptop and lots of calls, or would you be doing different things too? Well, um, I, when I was thirty three and I sold out in my first technology company, my wife said, "Eric, you've been working basically seven days a week." And we now have uh, our first daughter. Uh, eventually, a couple years later, had a second daughter. And together, uh, we decided that weekends should not have any business activities scheduled, including travel. And to whatever extent possible, evenings should not as, as well, because the kids would get to bed by 9 o'clock. So for uh, 30 years plus, my work habits have been... Uh, be be completely available from Friday night through Sunday night, just whatever it is. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, hey, you need to take the kid to the dance lesson. Terrific, no problem. My wife knows that wherever she is in the planet Earth, I will fly from wherever I am to be where, wherever, wherever she is. And uh, for 30 years of our marriage, it has been uh, an opportunity for her to know that, that I'm available uh, all the time with the kids. And to whatever extent possible, if I'm in town in the evenings, the same same methodology. I get home, the phone's not going on, and I'm not sitting at the computer. I'm with the kids. And then what happens practically is that I would stay up typically until 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning because everybody would go to sleep. I'd start at 10 o'clock with, with 
emails or something and work until 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. and then uh, get up in the morning and, and be with the kids for an hour or so, get them off to school and then go do work, et cetera. Um, as they went to college, my lifestyle changed a little bit and I'd start adding a, a around the world trip. I built with our team, uh, the largest biodiesel plant in India. It's a 50 million gallon plant. We built it from ground up. And so I was averaging one round the world trip every month for probably a couple years just before COVID. And so I'd, I'd get on a, a red eye flight on, uh, in the evening and in, in, uh, on Sunday, uh, and I'd end up perhaps in Dubai uh, or Singapore, a uh, lot of time in London, Frankfurt, uh, and certainly in India, Hyderabad, New Delhi, meeting with ministers. But I would just fly all the way around the world. If you're sitting in Dubai, it's quicker to come back by just continuing around the world. And uh, Beijing, spent a lot of time in Beijing, Vietnam, Saigon, <clears throat> uh, Japan, I did a big uh, transaction with Mitsubishi Chemical requiring some time in Tokyo. But I would just, uh, at noon on Friday, I'd wake up wherever I was, find a plane ticket, and fly back to California. And if you leave Dubai at noon, you'll get here at about noon on the same day because of the way the time periods work. And then I'd spend the weekend at home, and I'd get back on a plane and fly back to Dubai. And so uh, that, uh, and I do that typically one week out of every four weeks. So it's to me, it's it's largely a matter of, of being able to have white space in your calendar that is available to your family, because that takes the stress out of a lot of things going on. I, for 20 years, was the principal trumpet of our local church, uh, ending just a, a couple of years ago. Um, and uh, every you know Sunday and, and Christmas and Easter, I'd play the you know very difficult Harold uh, trumpet stuff and the the rock and roll jazz band stuff. I was a mm-hmm. principal trumpet of a of a big band, a Christian big band, doing stuff and 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 I was able to to do that because I just had nothing else to do. It's just you know I'm I'm there mm-hmm. with the family and what are we going to do? We're going to go to church. Eric, you 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 can play lead trumpet and you got a solo the Sunday. You know, go ahead and handle it. And then over the last uh, year and a half do, during COVID. I'm, I've been the principal trumpet player for a hundred voice choir that my daughter is in in college, and they needed a trumpet player, and and uh, my daughter got me to uh, get introduced to the fellow, and I said sure, and I rearranged my schedule to be able to go to, to performances and rehearsals, and uh, did you know uh, college level. Uh, music and recordings and Easter and Christmas and other stuff uh, while being the CEO of a NASDAQ listed public company. And of course, the other commitments I have with 25 different investments, et cetera. And so to me, it's all about how committed are you? And I was really committed to wanting to be with my daughter during COVID and to be able to be the trumpet player uh, for her very large choir with an orchestra of whatever it was, 20 people. Um, was it just a privilege, just a complete uh, opportunity that I would put ahead of meeting with the president of India anytime. So uh, to me, it's all about just figuring out what your priorities are and being really committed. It's hard, especially in entrepreneurship, to understand that your number one priority is persistence because that's your number one value add. The other people that are not leading are looking to you on what your level of commitment is and commitment is spelled persistence. If you give up when it's when it's a little bit difficult and inconvenient, then you're not really committed. And and I've I've if anything demonstrated that I'm probably too persistent, and I will take something that 
is in lots and lots of trouble and spend way too much time saying, well, how do we reposition this to be something that's really exciting and innovative and, and growing? And I'm very patient about that because I look at it as this is our contribution uh, to these teams. That's why we're there is to, is to reorient people from a lack of hope to a place of hope. Final question. Um, and this is a question I often like to ask, and and that is, what advice would you give to the young Eric McAfee who's setting out off in the world? Now, my initial thought is he may not need much of advice, but in the sound of things, he sounded like he really had a strong plan of what he wanted to do. But what are your thoughts? Um, let's see. Y- young young Eric was a pretty ambitious guy and uh, doing a lot of stuff in athletics, and I was the you know, the thespian of the year, I, I was lead in the, the, the play. I went to a large high school with about 4,000 students and ended up being able to be pretty successful there. So I would, I would tell young Eric, don't be too prideful. Learn that humility is your best leadership tool. Because the worst mistakes I've made in my entire life are all have, have one core um, problem. And it's pride. It was an inability to say, I can't do this by myself. Or an ability, inability to say, uh, I need to redirect because what I've said was going to happen didn't happen. I need to just communicate to people, here's where a really real reality is here. And pride is, for an entrepreneur, a necessary... Uh, that's wrong. Pride is what, what is the misinterpretation of confidence. Uh, it's it's a it's a distortion of confidence, and uh, I had too much pride when I was when I was younger, and it's been something that um, I I I just think that people too often get stuck in is well, gosh, you know, I have to have the nicest car in the neighborhood because that's part of my my pride about my feeling. Well, gosh, if you're going to do a startup, you might need to sell that and buy a pickup truck because that's what you need to do to match what you're going to contribute. And, and, you know, I, I do own a Bentley and I do have a Maserati, but I drive a GMC Yukon because I have to drive out onto dairies and into dairy farms and, and, uh, around industrial facilities. And, uh, that's, you know, just the, not really the, the core of, of the pride issues of these <laughs> pride issues for me are, uh, gosh, uh, don't care so much about whether it's going to make you look good. Let's care more about whether you're going to be able to contribute, uh, better, if you if you go in a particular educational uh, direction or otherwise, and uh, I'm uh, uh, I'm I'm hopeful that more and more people understand the power of humility, the power to be able to say, "I was wrong, I'm sorry." Can we do it better together by communicating better? These tools of leadership, I think, can really have a tremendous power that often is underestimated. Eric McAfee, it's been a pleasure to listen to you. A really fascinating insight into your world. Thank you very much. Thank you, Fraser. Look forward to talking to you again. And thank you for listening. I'll be back again in two weeks with another episode that has a strong international dimension. Bye for now. To find out more about the Scottish Business Network, simply visit sbn.scot.